I always try to uh, thank everybody that uh, brings us to the point, this point every Sabbath, but especially today, to thank Ralph and thank Melinda and Sharon, especially for that last one, because that last one was completely impromptu. We had a technical problem, and they, uh, they got us, gave us some time, but uh, much more blessed by you than the technology we were trying to fix. But uh, hopefully, everybody at home can find us again. Uh, so, um, We're told in the book of Genesis about our father, Abraham. Before he was Abraham, he was Abram. And when God gave him the covenant by which the entire world would be blessed, because you know, we sit here today blessed by the covenant with Abraham. Thanks to Jesus, we're all children of Abraham. But I'm reminded in Genesis 12, the very first thing that he did with the covenant was break it. See, God gave him the covenant, and part of the covenant was, those who bless you, will, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And Abram, early in his career as God's child and progenitor of all God's children on the planet for the next 4,000 years, faced somebody who was looking to curse him. Because as he travels to Egypt, the Pharaoh would have seen how beautiful his wife Sarai was and would have taken her for himself. So Abram comes up with the plan. And the plan is, tell them, I will tell them that you're my sister. I will tell them that you're my sister. And then he even says this, and things will go well with me. I'll give you away. And what do you think Pharaoh's gonna do with Sarai? He's gonna make her his what? His bride, or at least his property. And it says that Pharaoh did treat Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So the very first blessed child of God, first thing he does with the covenant that is given to him is he what? He breaks it and guess what? He's a liar. What do you think God should do to him? But the Lord struck, and you're thinking, oh, okay, right? You break my covenant, I'm coming back. I'm coming back at you now. No, it says the Lord struck Pharaoh, not Abram. The Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, why is this, what is this that you've done to me? Why have you done what you've done? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and everything that belongs to him. For breaking God's covenant... He gets his wife back, and he gets back everything that was given to him. Fast forward a couple thousand years, maybe not quite a couple of thousand. 
David is on the verge of having to fight a few more wars with the Arameans. So he decides to do something that seems to be a very sound strategy, and that is to take a census to see how many people, how many soldiers, how many people he still has. And when he does, it apparently is not something that was sound strategy. It was something that God did not want him to do. But David, all the information that he had in front of him seemed like a good idea to a general, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like a good idea if you're a general to know how big your army is before you put it up against an army who you know how big it is? But Gad, which is David's seer, if you will, he took Nathan's place as prophet, or he may have been a prophet along with Nathan. Gad came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, take for yourself, and this is the punishment that God has for David for taking this census, if you will. Gad came to David and said, this is it. You can either have three years of famine, three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemies overtake you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now therefore consider what answer shall I return to God for you? Three choices, right? Go to war. Allow yourself to be put in your enemy's hands or allow God to bring a plague upon Israel. David said to Gad, I'm in great distress, but listen to what is distressing him the most. Please let me, please don't let me fall into the hand, I, let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are very great, but don't let me fall into the hand of my enemies. David, king of all Israel, just did something to his kingdom that Samuel warned every king eventually does when it comes down to you or the people. David chooses who? He chooses the people. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel died. 70,000. And what's interesting even about this story is that in 1 Chronicles, where I read from, in the first, uh, first verse that I didn't, hadn't read yet, it said that it was Satan who stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. The same story in 2 Samuel 24, it says the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David then to say, let me take a census. You should see the look on some of your faces. I feel the same way. I feel the exact same way. Let me ask a question. What do you get when you put yourself in the hands of God the Father? See, we've been talking about uh, the Trinity. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about how all three of them are all God's presence. And certainly, we, in the Gospel of John, we, we talk more and more the, uh, about the Son, right? About God the Son. And then these last four weeks, three weeks, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. But what about the Father? 
Because I want you, I told you before, I'd like you to put yourself in the shoes, in the sandals, if you will, of the now clean feet of the disciples in the upper room that night, hearing Jesus, experiencing Jesus. Not just hearing him, but experiencing him. Hearing, hearing him pray, oh, well, that's, that's coming up. We'll start that next week. Hearing him pray for the disciples. Hearing him pray for himself. Having communion given to him. Having him wash their feet. And having him give this beautiful, beautiful five, cha- four chapter discourse his last chance on earth, his last opportunity. So remember what we've learned. Remember where we've been. Put yourself in the sandals, if you will, of these disciples. They're all Israelis, born and bred. They grew up with the stories that we're talking about. As a matter of fact, their lives are steeped with the stories all through the entire Hebrew scriptures, all through their entire history of 4,000 years and then even maybe a few thousand before that. What kind of picture do they have when they think of God? What kind of picture do they get when they think of the Father? And when Jesus comes and says, you should put your hands into the hands of the Father, because Jesus' argument is, I'm in the hands of the Father, right? But what is he to them? Especially these guys. These guys, these uh, working class, mostly fishermen from the Galilee. The kind that that the church of the day looks and says, you know what, we know all about this God the Father. In fact, we have him completely wired. I know exactly how to please him. The reason that you're poor, the reason that you're sick, the reason that you're sinners is because you don't know him like I do. And they have given these disciples a picture of the Father. Combine that with all you have is what is written about him. And 4,000 years of your ancestors and their opinion of who he is pouring into your DNA. What do you think their picture of the Father is before Jesus begins to teach what he's about to teach us today? At most, he's a riddle. Wouldn't you say that? It's a riddle. Because up until tonight, you put your hands in the Father, you put your fate in the hands of the Father, what are you going to get? You don't know, do you? I may get a plague. For something I didn't even do, by the way. I might get a blessing for being a liar and a breaker of the covenant. It's these guys that are asking the same questions that have been living with this riddle all their lives now. And I go back to why they decided to follow this country rabbi in the first place. Is it maybe, just maybe, that it's something different than what they've been told? What kind of, let me ask this, what kind of uh, blessing do you think that they get from going to synagogue, from bringing their, their, their offerings to the temple, everything about worship in their day? Again, it's a roll of the dice, isn't it? We don't know what we're gonna get. We know what they get from the other rabbis, Right? 
this constant idea, this constant picture, that God's angry with you simply because you're a sinner. See, and I can tell that by looking at you, by the way you dress, by where you're from, by how much money you make, whether or not you're healthy. So this riddle about the Father, Jesus is actually about to unlock for them. And they're not gonna be able to unlock this riddle with just words. Again, they're gonna have to have something, something that we've been talking about. They're gonna have to have the conviction we talked about last week. They're gonna have to be convicted of what he's about to say because they don't have any evidence of it whatsoever. So you ready to move on? You ready to hear those words? Are you tired of being riddled about the Father? Let's let Jesus unlock that riddle for us today. But it's appropriate that he begins with a riddle himself. See, he knows who he's about to teach the disciples of, and he begins it with a riddle. And the riddle is, a little while and you will know it. You will no longer see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. In a little while, you will no longer see me. And in a little while, you will again, what? See me. See, the riddle raises questions for the disciples immediately off the bat. Because the next verses, you can tell, they've got three uh, questions that this riddle brings about. It says, then some of his disciples said to one another, number one, their number one question, what does he mean by saying a little while and you no longer see me? I don't get that. Which is interesting because he's told them at least six times in this gospel that there will come a time when they will no longer what? As a matter of fact, at the beginning of this discourse, he begins immediately. Do not let your hearts be troubled. When I go away, right? What does he mean? And again, in a little while, you will see me. That's the next question. What? Either we see him or we don't. What is going on here? And then they said, and what does he mean by this? A little while. We do not know what he's what? We do not know what he's talking about. They don't even know the definition of a little while. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. What's interesting though is, do they? No, they say this to each other. He's sitting right there. But they don't want to ask him. Well, actually, they do want to, but they won't. Jesus knows, he said, that they wanted to ask him. So he said, are you discussing among yourselves what I meant when I said, in a little while, and you no longer see me, and again, a little while, you will see me? Is that what you guys are saying? And what's funny to me is that John already told you that's exactly what they were saying. So Jesus just repeats what he knows they were saying. They're living in the what? They're trying to live in the riddle. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will turn to joy. That somehow answers all three questions that he had, that they had. Does it? Nope. 
He didn't define in a little while. He didn't define, uh, say again that he was going away. He also didn't say what it meant when he would come back. He said that you will weep and mourn and then the world will rejoice but, and you'll have pain. So while the world is rejoicing over whatever's about to happen, you will have pain, but don't worry, your pain will then turn to what? Your pain will then turn to joy. So death, mourn, mourning, weep, and confusion. We talked about this in, in prayer meeting too. You do realize that when he leaves, technically they are never going to see him again. Not like he is. Get it? Not like that. And you have to remember that the man writing this gospel has already seen the glorified Christ on the island of Patmos. And when he sees him, he barely recognizes him. There's enough familiarity that that he turns around to see who's talking to him. In other words, his voice sounds the same, but when he turned around, he was completely what? It's completely different. His feet were on fire. He looked like burnished bronze. John may have had to shield his eyes a little bit. And when he does return after, when he returns, uh, if you will, after the resurrection, you have to remember that does Mary recognize him when she sees him? She thinks he's what? Who? She thinks he's the gardener. So something in, in, in the resurrection has also changed his appearance. So in a way, these guys right now, the Jesus that they're seeing is going to be completely changed. And I think Jesus does that on purpose. He says, because now everything's brand new. Your perspective has to change. Everything's gonna change. Your pain will turn to what? Your pain will turn to joy. And listen how he's going to do it. Listen how he is going to turn your pain to joy, speaking to those 11 disciples. It's a great reversal how Jesus answers these riddles. The disciples will weep, but the world will rejoice. Who? Who in the world will rejoice? Who rejoices at the cross tomorrow afternoon? Who is it that is rejoicing? The ones who accused him, in other words, the church, the Bible believers, they will rejoice tomorrow because they got what they wanted. What did they want? They wanted him dead. They wanted him crucified. So they what? Do they rejoice or do they mourn? They rejoice. How about the Romans? They rejoice or do they mourn? For for the most part, they rejoice except for the centurion that was in charge. He says, wait a minute. You know what? I think we messed up big time here, guys. I think we messed up big. Not only did we crucify an innocent man, I'm not sure he's a man at all. I believe he's a son of the what? Of the gods. So not every Roman rejoiced. So Jesus says, let me help you with that. Here's how your pain will be turned to joy. Jesus knew what they wanted to Oh, I'm sorry. When a woman is in labor, she has what? She has pain because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain when? You have pain now. 
but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. See, the resurrection will turn that pain into joy, but it also means that he's going away and what did he promise would happen when he went away? He would leave us who? He'd leave us the spirit. You'll no longer be orphans. You may miss my physical presence, but I'm gonna be with you better than I ever have been with you before. I'll no longer be walking in front of you, sitting in front of you. I'm going to live in you. How's that for joy, guys? And of course, do they understand? No. They don't understand, because why, man? He's not in there convicting them yet, right? Right now, he's just trying to teach them the words. Is it okay with Jesus that they don't understand? It's very good with Jesus that they don't understand. He said, there's a good reason you don't understand yet. Spirit needs to come in and begin to do his work. Remember? Convict us concerning three things. What was it? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. When you're convicted of those three things, of what I'm about to do, of what the Father has done for your sin and has done for your lack of righteousness and will no longer judge nor condemn you because you do have my righteousness, when you are convicted of that, your pain will turn to joy. How long? Forever. So Dr. Pauline points that out to us in his Bible Amplifier series on John. The resurrection turns pain to joy, but also don't forget that when he's resurrected and goes away, it's the spirit that the Father will give is what will bring joy. The spirit in you, he says, will convict you of the words I'm telling you. It's okay that you don't get it right now. But I'll tell you what I don't like. I'll tell you what I will not leave you with. I'm not going to leave you with this riddle anymore. I'm not going to leave you with the riddle that every believer in God has about the Father. And he's about to give one huge key revelation. As a matter of fact, I believe, I, I, I'm getting closer and closer to believe that this is the one revelation that Jesus came to reveal. And that is, who is God? Who is that guy? On Sinai. Who is that guy? Who is he? The revelation of Jesus Christ is the revelation of the Father. Jesus came to show us who was who. Jesus came to show us truly who the Father is, was, and is to what? And is to come. If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. See, he's told them these words before, hasn't he? But do you think that he's still a bit of a riddle to these 11 guys sitting there? I believe it's, not why, it's why they're not rejoicing yet. Because every time they bring up the father, the riddle comes up. Every time they bring up the father, these stories come up. Moses and Abraham and, and, and the children of Israel and slavery and the wilderness and, and plagues and, and um, exiles. You're telling me that if I've seen you, I've seen the Father. I've seen things in you, Lord, that I never, ever saw in the Father. When I, roll, when I come to the Father, I roll the dice. 
I'm either going to get a blessing or I'm going to get a plague. And Jesus says, okay, let me unlock this for you. By the way, does Jesus understand that? Does he understand the picture that most Israelites have of the Father? Of course he does. Which is why he understands his mission better than anything or anybody, right? He understands why he's there. And, and that's what I'm getting at is that this is the moment right here. This is why I came. To unlock this riddle that you guys have about the Father. So let's talk about the riddle a little bit. On that day, he says, you won't ask anything of who? You won't ask anything of me. Very truly, I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be complete. Jesus said, here's the reason why your joy, your pain will turn to joy, is I'm about to offer you something you never believed that you could have. I'm gonna give you my relationship with the Father. Thank you. Not bad, again. Not bad. But let me ask you this. Saying amen out loud notwithstanding. Isn't one of the reasons why when we're confronted with this that we as believers, we still have the same ambivalence about God? Right? Because there has been times and many times in our lives, Francis, I just saw you nodding. I don't, I don't want to call you out or embarrass you. But there have been times, many times in our lives when that father has brought us shame and condemnation. Or at least somebody told us, right? So we're doing a better job than you believe of putting ourselves in the sandals of those 11 guys, aren't we? Until now, you haven't asked for anything in what? In my name. Until now, you haven't approached the Father in my name. Until now, the Father hasn't been truly revealed to you. Jesus' argument basically to the disciples is, you like being with me? You like the picture of God that I've given you? Well, guess what? He is him, and he's always been that way. Always. Ask and you'll receive so that your joy may be what? Imagine for those 11 guys, after 4,000 years of the DNA and the negative DNA and the wrong things that have been dumped into them by their ancestors. And I go back to Peter. I go back to Peter at that, at, at, at that uh, conference in Jerusalem that, that we talked about uh, about a month ago now. When he told him, he said, guys, are you, are you really willing to dump all the garbage and baggage that our fathers dumped on us, on these brand new believers? What did it ever do for us? Again, the vagueness, the ambivalence, the riddle about the Father. A new relationship with the Father. Jesus is now the key. He is that relationship. 
He is that brand new relationship that we can have. Until now, either nothing, a roll of the dice, plague or blessing, the way they see it. The picture of the father without Jesus versus the picture of the father after. And I have to tell you that it's meant to be revealed to us as we live and as we grow and as we believe. And it does matter. It does matter the picture of the father that we had before Jesus. It does matter. Because if nothing else, we have some, some, someone to compare it to, don't we? So what Jesus is saying is from now on, when you hear those stories, from now on, when you hear 1 Chronicles 12, 21, from now on, when you hear Genesis 12, Jesus said, you don't have to be riddled anymore. You're not bound by what somebody taught you. You're not bound by maybe what you think. You're free. You're free to interpret. You're free to translate. You're free to live in the revelation of God that is Jesus Christ. You with me? The picture of God before the Father, uh, a picture of Father before Jesus, the picture after, that's, that's what we're looking at. And notice what happens when he begins to say these words. It says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. Why? Why does he have to say them in figures of speech? In other words, in order to cloak, because they, they don't get his true meaning. Why don't they get his true meaning? Because they still have that picture of the Father. They still have that picture of God before him. I have these things, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in what? In figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. It's been theory till now. I've given you a theory up until this moment. I've given you a theory to reconsider your picture of the Father. By the way, that's what I'm hoping to do today. I want you to consider, I want us to consider our picture of God. Even though we believe in Jesus, even though we believe everything that he brought us to, sometimes we still walk around with that bit negative picture of the Father. Why? Because we can't explain Sinai. Because we can't explain the plague. We can't, we can't bring them together. And Jesus said, you know what? That's, that's okay. Because he's also saying, you know what? The only way that you would ever be able to figure that out is to continue to walk with the Father. You're gonna, not going to get it by reading about him. You're not going to get it by studying deeper. You're going to get it if you walk with him and talk with him, which is what he always wanted to do. And he said, I'm here to do that for you. You want to ask the father why the plague? You want to ask the father why the blessings? Go ahead. You get to ask in whose name? In his name. If you want to, you can walk with him and have him further reveal to you who he really is and maybe get some more understanding of what happened that day in Jerusalem, what happened that day in Egypt. And Jesus said, but don't worry. 
You do not have to be bound by any interpretation that came before. As a matter of fact, I want you to put me right there. When you think of the Father in those situations, I want you to put me right there. And if you can't reconcile the picture of the Father that came before on paper and me sitting there, good! Because as long as you are still uh, baffled by this, maybe you'll continue to go to the answer of the bafflement. And let me help you. And by the way, will we like the answer? Maybe. Maybe not. It's been theory up until now, Jesus said. It's been words up until now. But after tomorrow, actually after three days after tomorrow, it won't be theory anymore. I'll begin that work. I'll begin that revelation. You can begin that walk and that talk with the Father. Plainly. What is it that's made plain uh, tomorrow and three days after that isn't plain to them now? On that day, you will ask in my name, and I don't say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. See, the picture that they have of the Father is, is that, let me, let me ask this. Did anybody have a mother or a father that you didn't know what you were going to get when you asked something? You were either going to get what? Yes or no. And yeah, me and my brothers learned pretty well on that if we wanted to get yes, our best bet was with our mother. Not the other guy in the recliner in the other room. And at best... We might get her to go in and do what? Yeah. And I have to admit, I have to tell you that every now and then I still have that same picture of God. His default is no. His default is angry. His default is punishment and condemnation. So Jesus said, before you even think that I'm going to go in and calm him down for you, if you think that that's what my intercession with the Father is about, he said, don't even think it. He said, because guess what? I'm not going to ask him. <laughs> I'm not going to ask him. I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. And here is the key. For the Father himself, what? Loves you. See, the disciples, I believe, right now are convicted that Jesus loves them. I really do. I don't think they understand how deep the, the, his love is for them. I don't think they get it. But I do think that they, they have a relationship with him that I, I, I think they wish they had with the father of all Israel. But they still have this picture of, I've got to roll the dice. I've got to send my mom in there to calm him down. I got to send the sun in there to, so, to calm him down and to cool him off and to tell the father that I'm okay. Jesus said, I don't have to do that because the father himself, what? Loves you. How long has he loved them? Jesus said, before the foundation of the world. And by the way, the words don't cut it. Because in the very book of Deuteronomy that they're getting this angry picture of God was our scripture reading for two weeks in a row now. 
God from Sinai, the very same Sinai that they were too scared to go up, he said, I didn't pick you because you were, I didn't pick you because you were great kids. I didn't pick you because you were more numerous. I didn't pick you because you were rich. In fact, you are the fewest. You're the poorest. I picked you because I love you. The words have been there for 2,000 years. The words have been there. But they're where? They're on a tablet. They're on a scroll. At best, for 4,000 years, Israel's been trying to relate to God by reading about him. Jesus said, now you get to walk with him, which is what he always wanted. You can't have a relationship with someone by reading about them. It's a fine introduction. Written scripture is a fine introduction. But Jesus said, look what uh, a nation of people for 4,000 years uh, who will only relate to him by written. Look at their history. Look what has happened to him. He's telling the disciples, look how you feel. <laughs> look, look how you feel when you bring up the image of God. I'm here to blow that away. I'm here to tell you that he's always what? He's always loved you. And he loves you now because you loved me. If you love me, you love who? You love the Father. That's what he's trying to get across to them. And have believed that I came from God. I came to reveal God to you. Why? Because I am him. <laughs> the beauty, the, the, the beautiful, beautiful lyrics, if you will, of the Trinity. I came from the Father, and I've come into the world. Again, I'm leaving the world, and I'm going where? And I'm going to the Father. He's saying I can't be separated from the Father because I and the Father are what? Are one. He's saying, guys, I get it. I get that you've hung with me for three and a half years. I see that you want to be with me. I've had a blast too, I really have. But guess what? Something better is coming. Something better is coming. You'll do greater things than me. And this is the better thing. If they get nothing out of tonight, the one thing that he wants to know, wants them to know, is that I don't have to go in and calm God down. I don't have to go in and make a case for you. He's not angry with you. He's not looking to condemn you. He never has. The Father himself, what? Loves you. And I have to tell you, the very first thing, the very first thing that the Christian church did was try to separate the Father from the Son. Isn't it the original heresy, Rob? The original heresy is the argument over who Jesus really was. If he is God, then he's certainly not the same God of the Old Testament. So the very first heresy of the church was that they separated the Trinity. They separated the Son and the Father. Jesus is the good God, and the Old Testament God is some sort of angry demiurge. That's the original heresy of the Christian church. We didn't even go 100 years before we began to develop that teaching. There's the beautiful belief, I think, also in the Trinity, is that the Trinity never allows us to separate that 
The Trinity allows us to be open to these words. The Father himself loves you. You don't need me. You don't need me to make the Father love you. You don't need me to go in and, and, and calm him down. You don't need me, Greg, to send uh, me in there like you used to send your, mo- your mother into your dad's room to figure out whether or not you could have some money to go to the fair. And I have to say that many, many years, to certain degrees, I still believe that about the Father. So the picture of the Father before Jesus, the picture of the Father after Jesus, the Father himself loves you. If you believe that Jesus loves you, then you can be just as assured that the Father loves you. In, in, in short, God loves you. The Father loves you. The Son loves you. The Holy Spirit loves you. The Holy Spirit loves you enough to live in you. Jesus is the absolute revelation of the Father because he is. And I have to say that even... (laughs) I... Israel fell short by trying to relate to the Father by only reading about him and not entering into a living, breathing relationship with him. And I will say that most Christians will fall short too because they enter into a relationship thinking that reading the New Testament, studying the New Testament is going to be the answer. Instead of treating it as an introduction and then allowing Jesus to reveal to us, to convict us in our hearts to be able to live out the love and the grace with which we've been loved and been gracious too. When we pray to the Father, we do not find an unwilling ear. He is as predisposed to us as Jesus is when we pray to him. It's because of a real relationship with him. The picture of the Father without Jesus. Now I'll try to close on this. I want you to remember the story of the golden calf. God comes down to Sinai. You have to remember, before he writes the Ten Commandments down, he spoke them to Israel, remember? Remember that whole scene where, where Moses says, uh, when the trumpet sounds, come on up. God said, come on up. You know, I know the way. You can follow me. Come on up. And of course, when the trumpet sounded, Israel decided what? No, we're gonna stay down here. He frightens us. Again, a certain picture of who? A certain picture of the Father. By the way, who did he remind them of? Thunder, lightning, earthquake? Who did he remind him of? Them. The gods that they just escaped from Egypt. Because that's what the priest told them. This is what happens when you anger the God of the sun. This is what happens when you anger the God of thunder, when you anger the God of the Nile. This is what happens to you. So when they get there after 400 years of being subjected to these petty, angry, uh, appease-hungry, appeasement-hungry, human-made gods, what do they have? What do they see? And what was God asking them to do? Actually, God gave them one thing to listen for. Don't listen for the thunder. He was telling them, I'm the one that has been in charge of all of that. 
Not, not the frog God, not, the, the, not Ra, not, not any of those. I've been the one that's in charge of that. But listen, you should be listening for something else besides that which you fear. You should be listening for the trumpet because that trumpet then, he said, is me. And they decide not to trust that. And so they tell Moses, you go what? You go talk to him. Obviously, he likes you. Obviously, he likes you. See, that was my premise when I was a kid. My dad liked my mom. Foolproof plan. Mom, go ask him for money for me. Obviously, he likes you, Moses. Go on. So God comes down and says, all right, this is what they want. But before I write these words down, let me tell them. Let me, let me let them hear my voice. So he recites the Ten Commandments to him, remember? He says all of them to him first. And then he calls Moses up the mountain as he wished. Come on up. And while he's up there, he's up there for 40 days. And what is he doing while he's up there? He's being given the Torah. He's being recited to. He's, and he's actually, when he comes back down, he won't have all the scrolls in the Torah, but he will have a synopsis of the revelation of God. He'll have a, 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 a what? Not a, yeah, a synopsis. I like synopsis. He'll have a framework. He'll have a framework, at least, of who God is. And he'll have them on these tablets. And when he gets down the mountain, what have they done? 40 days, hey, you know what? We thought, that, <laughs> we thought that God liked Moses, but guess what he did? I don't think he's coming back. So that God that Moses told us about must have been one of those gods in Egypt, so we better get down to appeasing one of those angry gods. So what do they do? They build a golden calf, and they say, this must have been, this must have been who led us out of Egypt. Not that scary guy who was talking to us 40 days ago. picture of the father before Jesus. So Moses catches them in the act. He stands there and he asks, who is on God's side? And about 300 guys all raise their hand, all from the tribe of Levi. The ones that are eventually to become the intercessors, the ones that are eventually to become the priests of the temple that God is gonna show them how to build, okay? Levi's stand up, say, I'm on his side. Moses says, draw your sword and start killing and don't stop until I tell you to. 3,000 end up dead in that, that day. Why? See, they truly believe there's no way out of this. That God's gotta be angry. Listen how angry he was 40 days ago. And now we've, we've, uh, we broke that very first commandment that he said. We've made other gods. So somebody's got to pay for this. Somebody's got to pay for this. So 3,000 men die. See, and here's what I see in these words when Moses then approaches them the next day. He says, today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, and each one of those, it's cost you a What? It's cost you a son, it's cost you a brother. 
and so have brought a blessing on yourselves today. See, this is what I read. Is it a blessing? If I just killed my own father or my own son or my own brother, is it a blessing? No. Moses is actually saying, y'all feel blessed now? How do you feel right now? Three thousand dead. This is it. This is all you're left with. By the way, what's still on the record? What they did yesterday. What's Moses telling them? The shedding of their blood has done nothing for your sin. You still know it's there, don't you? All you have to do is close your eyes and you can remember yesterday. And by the way, who's still sitting on his throne? He's still up there. Does he still know what you did? That's what I read when I read that. Y'all feel blessed? And the thing about Moses is that he gives them the whole night to think about it. Here they are. And look what he does the next day. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you sinned a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. You guys have come to the conclusion that there's nothing that you can do. There is absolutely nothing you can be done. You stand now in the condemnation of the sin and the blood of your brothers and your fathers and your son has done nothing. Here you are. God's still up there. He still knows what you did. And he goes, and he's the only one. He is the only one out of all of Israel who comes up with this idea. Maybe we can think of something else. Maybe I can go what? Ask. By the way, if you, if you think that the, the sons of Levi were not involved in this, where were they before Moses asked who's on God's side? They were there, weren't they? You think they participated in the worship of the calf? They were there. They didn't do anything about it. Right? If they could kill 3,000 people after it happens, why can't they go kill Aaron before he makes it? They thought, you know what? I can look good now, volunteer for this. And by the way, they didn't even notice that they tried to cover up one sin by committing another. Cover up the sin of making other gods by committing thou shall not kill in the process. So Moses was right. They're not blessed. They're more cursed than they were the day before. See, does it make everything right? Does it stand up to judgment? Everything that's been done? The next day, Moses says, maybe something else can happen. Maybe I can go ask him. And when he goes and he asks him, what is he asking him for? If there's some way out of this, what is he asking him for? Mercy. See, if God forgives this, it proves that he's what? That he's merciful. 
the only guy in the entire nation, the only guy that can even come up with or is predisposed to ask for God's mercy is the only guy that has a face-to-face relationship with him. Everyone else has decided they're going to relate to him on paper or relate to him through a system. Do you see what Jesus is telling us today? Look what a face-to-face relationship will do for you. If it could do this for Moses. And by the way, Moses doesn't even technically really see him face-to-face yet. You know why? Because it's another 2,000 years before Jesus comes enabling us to have a face-to-face relationship with him. Moses is just the one that came up the mountain. So God says, you know what? Uh, yeah, I, come on. Let, let me reveal to you all I can reveal to you. Moses is saying, reveal to me everything that I can get. Show me your glory. And out of the entire nation of Israel, Moses is the only one that can think of, huh, maybe I can just go ask him. A brand new picture of who? brand new picture of the Father. See, but when he comes down with God's forgiveness, he comes down with the commandments, which means what? The ones that you guys broke, the ones that I smashed, because I, I was pretty hacked at you all, you know? Look what God gave us. A clean slate. That picture right there is lost on them because they're not gonna go back to him the way that Moses will go back to him every day. You with me? Moses is the only one that has a brand new picture of who? Of the Father. So when it comes time to tell my sons what the Father is like, I have no choice but to give him the only information that I have, and that is what's been written about him, because I never went up the mountain. I don't have anything else to give him. So then I perpetuate this idea of living with the wrong idea of the father and living with the right idea of the father, trying to do both. And by the way, when we try to do both, who then is rolling the dice out there when they're asking you what the father is like? I'm either gonna give them Jesus or I'm gonna give them the wrong idea of the father depending on what? Depending on what mood I'm in depending on how I feel about the Father that day. And if I don't feel loved, and if I don't feel grace, and if I don't feel merciful, I can condemn them for being whatever sinner that they are, and by the way, I'll go back to the letter of the law to prove it to them. So that's how it happened. Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, the people have sinned and sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you'll only what? If you'll only forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out of the book you've written. I, you know, I've, I, I think I've talked about this before. Moses thinks that maybe he can appease him in, you know, by dying. And, and God says, no, you can't do it either. You know, I'll go with them. He just, he just says it. He goes, you, you can't do it either. He's not gonna take Moses' life to try to prove some sort of wrong point. He, know Mo, he, he knows Moses is gonna be back up the mountain tomorrow. I can continue to tell him why he can't be the one. I can continue to reveal to him why his blood will not atone. 
I can give him a picture that in 2,000 years, they'll be able to come to me. They'll know that I love them. And not just because they read it, but because they walk with me and they talk with me. A new picture of the Father. This is their joy now. This is their joy. No more limited view of God. See, the limited view, imagine the limited views of grace. I, I believe they're all there, and I'm, and I'm not telling you to quit studying you, your Hebrew scriptures, to quit studying your Old Testament. I still spend most of my time there. Why? Because the grace of God is revealed to me every day in that. And it's probably revealed more by what it doesn't say as opposed than what it does say. The patriarchs, the prophets, are all his attempt to, to um, have a personal relationship with. It's just that these guys and these gals are the only ones that'll give it to him. And if they're the only ones, he'll do it. If you're only gonna give me, and, and to, the, to the rest of Israel, if you're only gonna give me one day a year in the tiniest little room with one person, I'll take it. I'll take it. So we get the, you know, the real definition of a man after his own heart. Would Psalm 51 even be possible without the grace of God? We talk about David's repentance in Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart. Do you realize that without the grace or the mercy, or if even he believed that there was grace and mercy, it's the only reason he wrote the Psalm. If he didn't believe that God was going to give him grace or mercy, if he, if he believed that it was gonna be the same God that was gonna wipe out 70,000 people for his sin, would he have even written Psalm 51? That's why Paul says that it's only his grace that leads you to repentance. Jesus, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, don't even be angry. You've heard it said, eye for an eye. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. Love your neighbor as what? As yourself. See, without Jesus, God remains at best a mystery. Sometimes you get the stick, sometimes you get the carrot. Or at worst, you get a constant wrath against my sin and betrayal, and, and I need the sun to cool him off. No, not even that view, Jesus says. The Father himself what? The Father himself loves you. So where does that take us? How are we ever going to come to terms that this is exactly how he feels? Hmm? I knew I'd find it eventually. This is the one I want, to, I want you to take away. What's it gonna take? See, because you have to remember too what he's taught us all through this gospel, what he's, what he's completely come up with. He's proven that as far as our fellowship is concerned, he's fine with doctrinal differences. The Samaritans had doctrinal differences with Israel as to, they, they worshiped the same God, they just had doctrinal differences. 
And he offered the Samaritan the, the idea, at least, and the invitation, if you will, that one day, it's not this mountain or that mountain. We will one day worship in spirit and in truth. Because in, in chapter four, he says, all God's children will worship this way. Worship doesn't mean coming to a particular place or doing certain things. It involves an intimate relationship with God. Everything that he said from the upper room on, I'll give you a new relationship with God, a new relationship with the Father. He's offered to live in us by his spirit. And when the spirit dwells within, like living water, the relationship with God is given power and made real. Worship arises then out of that relationship. I heard one amen. You say amen, but how far are you willing to go with that? How far can God take us? See, if we have a wrong relationship with the Father, then we are going to begin to limit our fellowship as to who belongs and who doesn't, right? I have to tell you, the only reason, the absolute only reason that I have had the revelation and conviction that I've had is because I've been able to be with you in the body of Christ and I've been welcomed and I've been loved. Now some of you have loved me because you think that I'm sinless. But I've got sin and you've let me stay. So why can't we do that with everyone? Does the Father love them? When we don't let somebody join, when we don't let them in, what are we telling them? I'm just saying, how far are you willing to go? How far can grace take us? How amazing is grace really? Jesus is fine with Gentiles. In John 12, he has two Greeks wishing to see Jesus. Jesus announces that his hour has come. When the, when, the, when the nations come, they fulfill prophecy. When the Gentiles finally come, they fulfill prophecy because the prophet said there will come a day when even the nations will come to you. They will grab you by the arm and they will say, are you going to the mountain of the Lord? Take me. And then the prophet sings, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. For he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths and the law will go forth from Zion. That was a fulfillment of prophecy, those two Greeks showing up that day. And remember, that was the signal, actually. That was the signal. He said, now my hour has come. The nations are seeking me. Now my hour has come. This mission right here, guys, this is gonna be yours. These were Greeks, believed in mythology. They were pagans, human philosophy. They're carrying around teachings of Socrates and Plato. When the spirit lives and convicts, it'll bring them to the mountain. And when they come to the mountain, are you ready to teach them this? Are we ready to teach them this? He's fine with sinners, by the way. Prostitutes, tax collectors. Not invited by the church, but welcomed by the Lord and Savior that the church claimed to believe. 
in. And by the way, he didn't welcome them by pointing out to them who they should no longer be. He welcomed them as they were. The Father himself not only loves you, but has always loved you. So what he did with them is that he held out a hand and he said, walk with me and talk with me. He offered them a relationship. He offered them that picture of the Father. Are we, as his church, willing, ready, able to do the same? And if we're not, I understand. And he understands, doesn't he? All we have to do is tell him. Does he understand that we're not completely like him yet? Does he know that we're not absolutely like him yet? So what does he want us to do with that? Tell him. You get to see him every day. So tell him. Tell him. The Father himself loves you. I thank the Lord that he reminds us of that today. Thank you all for hanging in there.